If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Big stories, big guests, the big picture. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge. Weekdays 1230 to 3, 770 CHQR. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Rob Breckenridge. On today's episode, a signing ceremony for the new NAFTA deal, but it doesn't mean we're out of the woods yet when it comes to trade with the U.S. Also, looking at electric vehicles, a lot of talk about the environmental impact of moving toward electric vehicles. But what about the cost? Plus, as the Alberta government looks to save money in the healthcare system, a new report finds that a different model of funding primary care clinics could save the system a whole lot of money. All of us together have finally accomplished what we set out to do at the very outset. A win-win-win agreement, which will provide stability for workers in all three of our countries for many years to come. Well, that was, uh, I guess, former Foreign Affairs Minister uh, Christian Freeland, of course, now Deputy Prime Minister uh, and Intergovernmental Affairs Minister. But she was front and center during these NAFTA renegotiations and was on hand today for this signing ceremony in Mexico City. Now, it's a big step forward, obviously, for this deal and the fact that uh, House Democrats in the White House were able to reach an agreement on some changes to this new deal, whether you want to call it the new NAFTA, the USMCA, the CUSMA. Uh, some agreement between Republicans, or at least between the White House and uh, House Democrats. Uh, Senate leaders, though, were now saying that this probably won't come up in the Senate until after the impeachment trial in the Senate, uh, if and when that happens. So there's still a ways to go here. But this has been obviously a long and, and difficult process. And for what? I mean, it's so bizarre in some respects. Now, Trump came into office declaring NAFTA to be the worst trade deal ever. We go through uh, months and months and months of of drama and negotiations. We get this new deal that's kind of a a slightly updated version of NAFTA. and, And now this is suddenly the greatest trade deal of all time. It's really strange. Um, I, I mean, I guess, look, I mean, it's good that we were able to salvage something. Maybe in some respects, it's a little bit of a step backward from NAFTA, although there were probably some areas that did need some some updating, which I think was the point of the Trans-Pacific Partnership. Uh, so it seems like in a lot of ways, this was all kind of a pointless exercise. I mean, some relief, some size of relief in Canada that we got a deal done. Uh, but that doesn't mean that all of the trade drama with the United States is over. We had recently, of course, the threat from uh, President Trump uh, to perhaps pursue trade action against countries that, uh, in his perspective, aren't carrying their weight when it comes to military or military alliances. Uh, We even saw through the NAFTA renegotiations of the willingness uh, of the U.S. president to to slap steel and aluminum tariffs on trading partners, including Canada. Um, So I don't know that we're necessarily moving forward insulated from that kind of drama, but at least this is a a step in the right direction. Joining us for some thoughts on what this all means, very pleased to welcome to the program, Carlo Day, Director of the Trade and Investment Center of the Canada West Foundation, CWF.ca. Carlo, thanks so much for joining us here today. Welcome to the program. 
Hey, Rob, great to be back. So how significant uh, was it to, to have uh, all of these leaders uh, on the stage in, in this uh, the signing agreement uh, today in Mexico City? So, you know, this is part of the theatrics that go along with any trade agreement. And as you mentioned in your lead-in, theatrics certainly have been um, the leading force behind uh, this renegotiation. But as you also mentioned, you know, having an agreement is better than not having an agreement. Um, the agreement really does not you know, lead to net economic welfare gains uh, amongst the three countries. It actually leads to slight losses, according to modeling done up here in Canada. So, yeah, better to have an agreement than to not have an agreement. But you're absolutely right. We're not out of the woods with the Americans and this U.S. president. So where do you see some of the areas of concern then moving forward? So moving forward, uh, again, you know, the agreement, uh, once the president submits the submitting legislation to the House, uh, the clock starts ticking. Uh, there are a limit to the number of delays that it can be considered. So we're going to see resolution to this fairly, uh, fairly soon within the 45-day limits. But um, the issues, wow, you know, the agreement did manage to give us some protection from this unilateral, impulsive uh, tariff action from the U.S. president, but only for the automobile sector. So we managed to carve out the side letter in the agreement stating that the Americans would give us, I think, two-point-some million cars a year that would be excluded from national security tariffs on autos. Now, as you mentioned, we have seen national security tariffs on steel and aluminum, but what a lot of your listeners may not be familiar with is that the president also won the authority to be able to declare national security tariffs on autos. So we and the Mexicans managed to carve out basically a million more cars than we export now, an additional million cars um, to be exempt from that. But pretty much every other sector of the Canadian economy is exposed to this type of unilateral action, not just national security. There are five or six other statutes besides national security that the president can use. Petroleum's exempted because of something that happened in the U.S. in the 1970s and autos. But the rest of our economy is uh, open to this sort of action. And is there any way around that? I mean, is, is that just how, how it has to be? Or, or is this something that, that we could still try to negotiate? Well, we're not going to negotiate it in this agreement with the Americans. At one point, it was reported that the Mexicans got the Americans to move on this. But then that was lost when Canada came back to the table. So certainly the Americans weren't willing to give up more uh, of this power. It's been incredibly useful for them. They managed to drag Japan kicking and screaming to the negotiating table. They've used it with other countries, so I don't see them giving up. What we can do, the only thing we can do, since we don't have votes in Congress, is to do the same thing we did with NAFTA, and that are the not just fighting in Washington, D.C., but premiers going to governors, chambers of commerce going to their counterparts in the U.S., to make the case to try and build allies to either prevent this from happening or if the president does slap tariffs on to get our allies in the states to demand an exemption for Canadian businesses and for Canada. That's really the only path um, forward uh, for us on this. 
Yeah, and you made an interesting point there about, you know, kind of that full court press. And, you know, to the government's credit, I mean, I, I think we responded in the right way uh, when when it became clear that, that the White House wanted to renegotiate NAFTA. And, and there was bipartisan support. I mean, I, I know the conservatives had some criticisms of the final deal, but there were a lot of conservatives uh, who were involved in this process. Uh, officials uh, from the Mulroney era, of course, Brian Mulroney himself even uh, playing a part in all of this. So we, we did have more or less a united front in this, didn't we? Yeah, and even that goes down to the provinces, too. Um, as with the agreement with the European Union, the provinces and the feds came together for regular meetings, exchange of information, coordination on, on outreach. And so that was very, very important. You had some premiers who had exemplary access in Washington, D.C. Brad Wallace, Saskatchewan, arguably had some of the best access of any Canadian. So we were able to level um, the, these forces. But going forward, we can't take our foot off the, uh, off the pedal with this. The cost of doing business in North America nowadays has gone up because of what the president has done and what he can do. And we're going to have to continue this, uh, this level of effort. Well, and, you know, it, it alluded to the outset, we heard it last week, the president suggesting that he might tra- uh, take trade action against allies that are not where they need to be with regard to their military spending. And I guess just having this agreement with the U.S., that, that's not necessarily going to protect us if he decides to go down that path. No, and the president with steel and aluminum tariffs, he originally exempted, I think, Argentina and Brazil. And just last week or the week before, he announced that, no, nope, he's changed his mind and the tariffs are coming back because their uh, trade surpluses with the U.S. has grown. You want to find another country with a trade surplus with the U.S. that's growing? Well, Canada would have to stick its hand up, too. Now, at the same time, I mean, as, as we've been renegotiating NAFTA, we have made progress in, in rescuing and, and moving forward on the Trans-Pacific Partnership. We've got a free trade deal in place with Europe. So, I, I mean, we are opening up other markets, but I guess, you know, there's no escaping the fact that, that the United States remains and will remain our, our most important trading partner. 75% of our exports, 66% of our two-way trade, and of the small and medium enterprises that do export, 85, roughly 85% export only to the U.S. So, yeah, getting into the trans-Pacific market, taking advantage of the access we have to Japan and Europe is going to take a lot of time and uh, a lot of effort. But we are seeing some progress. The government's turned its attention to trying to promote these deals. At Canada West, we have new types of modeling to find new opportunities um, in places like Japan. So we're seeing some movement to facilitate that. But you're absolutely right. 75% of our exports, 85% of SMEs only export to the U.S. We're going to be with the Americans, which is why we have to make that continued investment in protecting our access to the market. Indeed. Much more at CWF.ca. Carlo, appreciate the insight. As always, thanks for joining us here today. Hey, Rob. Good luck. All right. Thanks. Carla Dade is uh, with the Canada West Foundation, director of their Trade Investment Center. So his thoughts on, on what we've got through this new NAFTA deal uh, and some of the threats that still remain. And as he says, probably the biggest is that unchecked unilateral executive power that I think has probably been abused to some extent. Uh, you know, the, the claims of national security have been rather tenuous in some of these cases where tariffs have been applied. Uh, But through that uh, Section 232, a U.S. president does have that ability to impose uh, tariffs. 
So we, we've got some protection uh, on that front through these uh, through this new agreement, but it's it's not blanket protection, and so there are still potential challenges that exist uh, moving forward. But uh, the important thing is we still have a free trade agreement uh, with the United States. Policymakers are looking at the environmental impact uh, of switching from uh, fuel burning vehicles to electric vehicles, although. You know, we got to remember the electric, how's the electricity generated in the first place? But um, sure, maybe there's some environmental benefit. But what about two government budgets? And an aspect of all of this that maybe we're not thinking about, our next guest has certainly given it some thought, uh, Jack Mintz with an article for the Financial Post on uh, why we need to tax electric vehicles or else we'll be left with a huge hole in our budgets. Dr. Mintz, of course, is the President's Fellow of the uh, University of Calgary School of Public Policy. Dr. Mintz, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. No, my pleasure. Uh, yeah, at the moment, it doesn't seem as though electric vehicles are a big part of, of the market and the number of vehicles sold in Canada, but you think that's likely to change in the years ahead? Um, oh, I think it will. I, I do think that uh, we'll see a penetration of electric cars in the, in the market for the reasons you gave. Governments are going to be requiring it. Uh, they are providing incentives now, although I suspect some of those incentives will eventually disappear if electric cars uh, are regulated to to be increased as a share of sales. Uh, and so what, what are the implications of that beyond whatever the environmental arguments are for having more electric vehicles on the road? What are your concerns about the implications? Well, I, I think we have to remember that uh, the fuel excise tax is a federal one that you know, ten cents a, a liter, and then there's provincial ones across the country. They they average around fourteen point four cents a, a liter, um, and there's also you know uh, HST and GST on the uh, on the fuel excise taxes, an interaction effect, uh, and uh, and and the carbon taxes as well. Uh, so when you start adding it all up, uh, you're once getting to a level of uh, you know, of a lot of bucks uh, that governments uh, are raising uh, by, by taxing car, cars, uh, conventional cars, in terms of gasoline and diesel taxes. And, and that adds up to uh, uh, $22 billion across the country at federal and provincial levels. And, uh, and that doesn't even include the few local ones, like in Montreal and Vancouver, where there's some local fuel excise taxes there. And so the, it's a, quite a bit of money. And uh, and and we have to remember road transportation in this country costs governments about twenty billion dollars, and so uh, if we eliminate the fuel excise tax by everyone converting to electric, the big question is who's going to pay for the roads? Well, yeah, we still need roads for electric vehicles to drive on. You're right. Look, I mean, if if people feel or if policymakers feel that this is a price worth paying, we'll make up that money somewhere else. Then, then so be it. But they're, they're not really being upfront about that, are they? Uh, no, and and in fact, there's there's a very good argument to to tax uh, vehicles on things like road damage, uh, environmental effects, and even electric cars have environmental effects that uh, we shouldn't forget about because battery disposal is is a, is expensive. Uh, just the building of batteries creates greenhouse gases alone. So even though governments love calling electric vehicles zero emission cars, they're really not. Uh, and uh, and I think that uh, is a, they also cause congestion on roads and things like that. And so when you when you start adding it all up, you know they should be paying for some of the costs, just like we put these taxes in the past on on automobiles and and, and trucks. 
in order to uh, recover the cost of, of road transportation and deal with congestion and some of the other costs associated with it that society has to bear. Well, and I mean, can can we simultaneously be offering incentives for electric vehicles and taxing electric vehicles? Does this mean we really got to rethink our approach here? I think we are eventually going to have to do that. I mean, the incentives are used right now to try to encourage conversion, as, as you mentioned. In fact, in Norway, they, they even eliminated the value-added tax on on auto, on electric uh, car vehicles. And, and I read a piece once uh, in Norway about uh, concerns about not having enough money to pay for roads. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. so even the Norwegians with 47% conversion rate now are, are starting to feel what happens when you deplete your government revenues and, and all of a sudden you have to find other sources of revenue to pay for something that was once covered by these, uh, fuel taxes that were, uh, paid by owners of uh, conventional cars. What about the environmental impact? Because it, it seems clearly that these are environmental policies that are driving this. Uh, if we are now taxing electric vehicles, are we are we no longer pursuing a, a better environmental outcome? Or how does that factor in, do you think? Well, I think we have to remember there's different environmental impacts. And the principle of pricing environmental costs, uh, which people are applying to greenhouse gas emissions, also apply to a lot of other environmental costs as well. Uh, and so uh, when building uh, electric vehicles, there should be taxes on, you know, greenhouse gas emissions that are caused by by uh, building electric uh, batteries uh, and, and by some of the co- other costs associated with manufacturing the car. Uh, but we should also be having taxes on uh, on congestion, which is... You know, which is a productivity issue because when one more car gets onto a busy street, it just slows down travel for everyone else, and that costs a cost. That poses a, a another form of externality or spillover on that, on other uh, on other drivers. Um, and you know, and and so the list goes on. Uh, and and uh, no, op- absolutely, electric cars should be bearing whatever environmental costs that they, that they cause, mm-hmm. uh, as well as road damage and. And congestion costs. Uh, so, what, what do you think ultimately is is the most? I, I don't know. Fair is the right way to look at it. But what's the most efficient way then of of taxing electric vehicles or somehow recouping these these lost revenues? Well, uh, I think the best way is tolling uh, because you can have a toll charge that vary from peak to non peak times, and you can have a higher toll charge on heavier vehicles compared to lighter vehicles. Uh, to compensate for the, you know, the cost to, uh, to building roads and, and, and damage to roads. Um, and, and that will, you know, and also that could be a good way of, you know, taxing people according to the use of the roads, how much people drive. Uh, the problem with toll roads, though, is, is are really twofold. One is just a, 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 a technological issue is that, uh, toll, toll roads would be very hard to do in residential areas. They tend to be more applied to things like bridges and large, you know, uh, highways and roadways and things like that. So it's not a, it's not an entire solution. Um, and the other issue is that Canada, we are really very politically opposed to to tolling. Uh, mm-hmm. It it hasn't gone very well in most provinces. And uh, as we know, in, even in Alberta, there's been discussion of things like tolling some of the major highways, but that's gone nowhere so far and so 
uh, Canadians are very resistant to tolling. So I think we need to look at other solutions. And one of the things I thought of is that maybe we should have a, a license uh, that is based on uh, a charge according to how much time you've um, you've been driving the vehicle. Uh, uh, you know, some sort of metering that could be based on you know the mileage or kilometrage that uh, that one drives and have a price per kilometer. It's it's not as good as tolls because you're not bearing it by weight necessarily, although you could on a license fee, um, uh, but you're not bearing it by, uh, you know, congestion costs and things like that. But at least it's a another way of trying to assess it according to the use of, of the vehicle. Um, yeah, and, and maybe, you know, as we said at the outset, even though electric vehicles are a pretty small part of the marketplace now... I guess now is really the time we want to be thinking about this, not 10 or 15 years down the road when they're 30 or 40 or 50 percent of the marketplace. Oh, absolutely. In fact, uh, you get into a lot of public policy trouble if you wait too long because you get so many people who get something free and they don't want to give that up. And then it becomes a political football to try to change things. And so uh, it is much better to do this at an early stage. Uh, rather than wait many years down the road when you're up to 50% penetration or whatever the level of penetration uh, is going to be involved. All right, very interesting. People can read more from you. It's uh, up at financialpost.com, your piece on all of this. Dr. Mintz, thanks so much for joining us here this afternoon. Appreciate it. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks. Robert. All right. Take care. Uh, Dr. Jack Mintz, uh, President's Fellow of the University of Calgary School of Public Policy. So a different kind of perspective on the impact of electric vehicles, right? Which, look, there, there are more of them available. These days, uh, more companies are making them, and we've got government policies that are aimed at trying to create incentives for people to buy them. Now, you might have your own reasons for buying an electric vehicle, and you know, depending on on your travel habits, you might you might actually save money in the long run uh, through an electric vehicle. But something to think about, as he mentions, that if all of a sudden tomorrow every single vehicle uh, on the road switched to to electric, you'd be talking about some twenty two billion dollars in foregone revenue. That's a lot of money. Now, you might say, good, no more gas guzzlers out there, no more gasoline being burned. Okay, but that poses a pretty big problem, doesn't it? The Alberta government is certainly trying to find ways of saving money, and that includes health care, trying to find ways of making the system more efficient. So... How do we know where, where to begin when it comes to that? Where do we find efficiencies that we're going to change how the healthcare system operates with an aim of finding savings? Where, where does the focus need to be? So an interesting report from the Health Quality Council of Alberta might point us in a direction. Now, when it comes to doctors, the way doctors are paid, we've been hearing some, some stories about proposals from the government that the Alberta Medical Association is not too happy about. Uh, so there might be a, a bit of a showdown brewing on, on that front. And so maybe this is a, a, a way of also uh, finding a, a system that can save the system money and work for doctors, too. Uh, so this involves uh, Calgary's Crowfoot Village family practice and the Tabor Clinic. So we've got two primary care clinics that are using an alternative funding model for doctors. This is what's known as a team-based model of care. So what we have in Alberta right now is a fee-for-service payment that most physicians use. Uh, So you see a patient, you bill the province. That's typically how it's done. But what's different with these two clinics is they get basically a lump sum each year from Alberta Health. 
uh, to care for patients. And, and it's not about counting the number of visits. So the Health Quality Council of Alberta has been studying the experience of these two clinics and said while there was some higher costs up front, these have actually saved the healthcare system a lot of money. Well, joining us to talk more about this is uh, Andrew Nooner. He is uh, CEO of the Health Quality Council of Alberta. Andrew, thank you so much for joining us here. Welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. All right. So how long have these clinics been operating under this uh, this team-based model of care? The two clinics have uh, been in operation for about 17 years, and our work reviewed the last 10 years of that. Uh, and so why was it important then from, from the Health Quality Council of Alberta's perspective to, to learn what the experience has been here? Well, what was important to understand is given that these clinics had been operating for such a long time, uh, we wanted to make sense of uh, what was going on in both Tabor and Crossland and be able to evaluate and assess their experiences and to be able to come out and clearly say, you know, is this a, a good way of practicing? Does this provide for better outcomes? Can this save money? And, well, it will appear the answer is yes. What, what did you find here? Well, the answer is absolutely yes, that um, both clinics have shown over time that their patients have better outcomes than uh, other Albertans and that their costs um, are lower and those costs over the last 10 years have added up to something in the order of $120 million of real savings. And um, so it's the best of both worlds um, to have improved care at a lower cost. So where, where, where are the savings coming from then? Why, why is this approach proving to be so cost effective? I think it's a combination of a lot of things. It's it's uh, partly it's uh, more appropriate care, uh, seeing the right provider for the right type of care. So at both clinics, um, the first provider that you see may not be a physician. It may be somebody else who's part of the care team who can help manage uh, a particular part of your health journey. It's uh, providers working together as a team, and the evidence is very clear not just here, but uh, worldwide, that uh, team-based care is better for patients, um, better for the system, and it provides a better experience. What's interesting, too, it appears, though, then the, the, clinic, or the patients at these clinics, uh, they have fewer trips to the emergency room. They, they get admitted to, to hospitals less often. They're, even when they do, their length of stay is shorter. So w- what's the connection there, as you understand it? Well, the, the connection is that the, the patients understand that they have a medical home or a health home, that they belong to a practice um, where they are looked after by a team. And the team knows them, they know them by name, and they know their history, often their family history. And, and you know, part of the uh, success of both the Tabor and, and the clinic and the Crowfoot models is, you know, seeing patients um, and helping them avoid other parts of the system um, by providing good primary care on a on a regular basis, yeah, because so it's we, a much yeah. more holistic approach, right? Because if we just look specifically at at the cost uh, of of these clinics, it's comparable. But when you look then at, at the broader impact, emergency room visits, inpatient stay in hospital, that's where you start to see really substantial savings. Sure, and and much of you know the conversation provincially, nationally, and elsewhere is about transitioning care from a hospital setting back to the community and primary care setting. 
Mm-hmm. So the experience of these these two clinics is that for the past 10 years, that is actually the model of care where, you know, um, they want to be their primary source of, of care at the clinic and put in place a care plan with their patients so that the patients participate in developing so that if you're prone to have a particular chronic disease like diabetes, let's manage that as best we can in this primary care setting to avoid the chances that you have to go to a hospital setting where the care might be more complicated, more expensive. Now, this is unique in Alberta, but is is this more common in, in other jurisdictions? So these models of care are moving away from fee-for-service are uh, growing. Alberta, um, we don't provide many of these uh, arrangements compared to other provinces across the country, um, but it is typically the way of providing care in most European countries. This is, this to European countries, this is just normal. This is what happens when we go to see a clinic. Uh, we go, we're looked after by a team. We don't always see a doctor. Um, so we've got some work to do to catch up uh, to the experience of others. Well, you think this uh, this this model could be applied more broadly in, in our healthcare system here? That's absolutely the case. It's not for everyone, and you can't just exactly replicate both of these because they're, you know, the Tabor Clinic is different because it also provides care in the hospital. It covers the emergency department. They deliver babies, whereas the Crowfoot Clinic is is an urban model. So they they don't follow through to the hospital, but they but when you look at all the data, they still have the same similar kinds of outcomes because of how primary care is provided. So that's why our recommendation was really clear that we need a proper framework in Alberta that considers all the different ways of of having these alternate models, so that we don't create you know twenty twenty five different ways of trying to achieve the same thing. We keep it to a reasonable number that we can manage effectively. And I do believe that there are many communities and clinics and physicians who would appreciate uh, an opportunity to practice this way. All right, very interesting. Andrew, thanks so much for making some time for us here this afternoon. Appreciate it. Thank you so much. All right. So that's Andrew Nooner, CEO of the uh, Health Quality Council of Alberta. So they, they find that this model that's used just really in these two clinics in Calgary, there's the one in Tabor, obviously, the Tabor Clinic and the uh, Crowfoot Village Family Practice here in Calgary. Uh, so they say while these clinics cost a little bit more upfront, they've actually saved the healthcare system a combined total of nearly $120 million over 10 years. That's just from two clinics. So it's interesting when you look then at just the straight up costs each year, you know, giving this, these clinics a lump sum versus having the doctor's direct bill, there's really not much difference. But where there's significant difference, uh, emergency room visits, inpatient stays at hospital. Uh, it is quite a difference between uh, the Alberta average and what you're seeing at these clinics. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcast. You can also find me on Twitter at Rob Breckenridge. You can email me, rob at 770chqr.com. Talk to you next time. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge, starting at 1230 on News Talk 770 Calgary.